Hi, I'm Melissa Withers, and this is Unfounded. In each episode, a guest and I tackle a topic about biz building and startup culture, but we do it by asking each other only three questions, one about the past, one about the present, and one about the future. The third question, the one about the future, that's the wild card. We have not shared this question with each other in advance. And that's it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, Stephanie. So happy to have you here today as my guest on Unfounded. Our topic today is, and the brand played on. Uh, When it comes to talking about design and customer experience and building a brand, girl, you know things. Uh, I remember when I first met you, um, we were in a bunch of rooms together, but I didn't know you. And you just kept saying incredibly smart, empathetic, interesting things. And I think I followed you into a bathroom one day and I was like, who are you? Tell me who you are so we can be, we can, I can be connected to you forevermore. And so I am so happy to have you here today for this conversation. We have three questions that we're going to ask each other about brand and startups and and all of that. Um, One looks to the past, one speaks to the present, and one looks to the future. As you know, we've given each other a sneak peek at questions one and two about the past and the present, a question three, the one about the future, that's the wild card, and we have not shared that with each other in advance. And no formal bios on this show, so, but for anyone watching or listening, you can read about Stephanie's experience as an entrepreneur, as an investor, a mentor, an advisor, a builder, a doer. All of that is in the show notes. But instead of reading bios, I've asked Stephanie to pick three words to describe herself before we jump into this conversation. So Stephanie, three words. Okay, but first, I just want to say, Melissa, that you have been a mentor to me as a mentor. So it really is my honor to be here today uh, to get to contribute to something that you are doing. So thank you very, very much. But I am a resourceful creator and integrator. Yes. Sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds so good. You Again, nobody needs me to affirm their words, but those are like the best words. And I don't know about that. Truly the reason why I chased you down the hall to meet you. Um, you are those things. Yes. Um, okay. We're going to get into this. And the brand played on. Let's talk about it. Uh, all right, Stephanie, get in your time machine. Doo, 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 doo. I'm going to ask you to look backwards for this question. Yeah. Um, so in the 1500s, branding was literally about putting your literal mark on stuff to make it yours. In the 1800s, it was about mass production and being able to help people distinguish. It wasn't until the 1960s that the word branding took on the more experiential and emotive qualities that I think we sort of glibly uh, bandy about today. But even with that shift, branding for a very long time remained the purview of very large companies. Uh, for startups, brand was about your logo, your look and feel, maybe packaging. And then that was kind of it. Until it wasn't. And then all of a sudden there was a seismic shift and consumers uh, both um, on their personal and professional sides basically began universally responding to, if not demanding branded experiences for almost everyone that they, that they bought things from. Um, and I know this is a very complex dynamic, but from your perspective, what do you think drove this change? Well, first of all, you are quite right. A seismic shift has occurred. I think I read, I was prepping for this a little bit this week, and I read online that the average consumer is exposed to something like 3,000 brand messages a day. I mean, that's that's just incredible to me. Um, So I thought what I'd do actually is tackle this from the supply side as well as the demand side. I was an econ major, so let's give that a try. Um, And I'm going to start with the supply side, and you know what I'm going to say. 
it simply has gotten cheaper and therefore cheaper mm. and therefore more accessible to startups to create and communicate brands. You know, startups can crowdsource brand names now. They can um, hire a freelancer to craft a logo pretty inexpensively. And they can even actually create one themselves by using a handful of AI-driven platforms. Um, and also the proliferation of communication channel, that speaks definitely, communication channels has meant that startups can acquire customers at the same time they build their brands. And you know, mm. that wasn't something we could even do at Gillette. We had $40 million of advertising to do, but we had to make a decision every year. Do we run the commercial that's focused on the best a man can get, branding advertising? Or do we focus on Mach 3 or, or Fusion or whatever we were, whatever product we were, um, we were focused on at that moment? And so we couldn't even do that. Yeah. Turning out of the demand side, consumer side, brands have always been desired by consumers. That really hasn't changed, but something definitely has changed. And so if you look back at the supply side for a second, all the forces we described have simply created too much choice for consumers. And you know, brands help consumers navigate choice and they make consumers feel good about the choices that they make. And so consumers need them more today really than ever before. But really the more profound thing is the rise of social media. Now, back in the 90s, when I first started my marketing career, um, big brands were engaged really out of necessity because this is the way media and marketing worked back then in a one-way dialogue with consumers, yeah. right? We had our product not narratives. We could tell you what it did for you and maybe how you might feel after you used it. And we were kind of an authority on whatever subject matter we were talking about. And that was our relationship with consumers. Now, social media has really changed all that. It's made brands a two-way conversation. Now, to be clear, you know, we, we always knew consumers were a powerful, but actually impossible to access constituency. But what has changed is that consumers now have real voice in the conversation, right? Yeah. Um, brands now like Glossier have arisen from this voice instead of being, you know, designed by marketing people or agencies like me. Yeah. Now, brand is like a peer. And oh so, God. I mean, it's it, like neuroeconomics. It's totally different now in that sense, even though what yeah. a brand means is still the same thing, how they get created and how they get communicated is totally different. And so, yes, consumers can demand brands more today and, and they, and they can and because they can, they will. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, my last thought on this is that all of this conversation creates data that then helps marketers and especially startups, um, you know, titrate their messages to a tighter circle of, of consumers. And so in ways we can have more brands because we can make them apply to more to smaller groups of consumers. Yes. So, you know, I think startups actually in this regard have a real, have a real advantage. I never thought about that, but the titration actually creates real space for more brands because brands can become, they, niche is okay. Cause you can yeah. actually affect, you couldn't do it when all you had was a bullhorn. It was like a joke, man. Right. I, okay. All right. Wow. Wow. Like, wow. I did not expect you to say all that. So, um, okay. Um, <laughs> too much. All right. All right. No, <laughs> no, not at all. All right, Stephanie, take me to the past. Okay. Where's my question? Hold on a second. Where is my question? Oh, this is so bad. Um, okay, so 
Related to your question to me, I have witnessed, and I'm sure you have too, a rise, an explosion actually in the DTC business models and brands. How have you thought investing in these type of companies? What do you think the unique challenges they face are? And Melissa, is this a fad, a phase, or a fundamental shift in our options as consumers? All right, D, all of the above. Um, but going back to the, the head of the question, um, I think so much has changed. I think the underlying technology, many, playing off of what you said, the, there are real economics at play here. You can just do things today that you couldn't do before. I remember um, being an investor, uh, an equity investor in one of the very first um, men's subscription services. Uh, and everything was like duct tape and pipe cleaners and manual, right? There was no Shopify, no, you couldn't even manually process payments, right? Fast forward, now the infrastructure is there, which frees up energy and space for companies to be thinking about creating a more meaningful connection with their, with their customers. Um, I think the challenge is that you can get to market today really fast. You can get a little bit of action that yeah. feels really, really good. And, but then I think a, there's like a reality, a wall that hits um, that exposes how maybe Gossamer, some of those early assumptions were about what that market fit looked like. I think on the brand side, if you would ask me a few years ago, I used to say quite frequently that companies, early stage companies, whether direct to consumer or not, could postpone thinking about brand beyond look and feel, right? Beyond consistency logo for a while. And I would make the case that, you know, you needed the velocity through the system before you had made those choices. And there's still some truth to that, but I think the, the, the delta between when you start and when you need to really start thinking about that has, has shrunk dramatically. And I think on the consumer side, that is especially true. And I think now where we've saved money on infrastructure uh, and being able to operate, to being able to use cheaper tools to go to market with physical products direct to consumer, you now need to spend more money on understanding your customers, your relationships with them and all of the ways that you that you communicate with them on like a treadmill, it never ends. You get it right for a minute, the half-life on that is like a hot second. And so while we maybe we had an economic savings by having all this shared infrastructure for direct-to-consumer brands, I think there's now been an incredible shift and you now need to be investing both in people and I, I mean, people cost money in these parts of your business in ways that have far exceeded my expectations at the time. So I think the, any of the, the, when we used to say it got cheaper to start a business, I think we're back on the other curve. I think we're going up the other curve and yes, certain things are cheaper, but more things now are more expensive. And so I think the, the, the pressure for a company that might be at a half million dollar run rate to have to really start investing and making difficult choices around brand experience, voice, all these things. I think now it's like the devil is breathing down your back. So that's mm -hmm. it. Um, okay, fast forward back to now. We're in the present day. Um, Stephanie, when it comes to creating experiences that mm -hmm. customers love, which is perhaps the first step in building a brand at all, right? If customers don't love you, yeah. then don't bother building a brand around it. Exactly. Um, what skills do you think founders need today to focus on building, uh, founders need to build either within themselves or by extending their team to win over customers and really just create that stickiness that companies crave. Yeah, and I, you know, I definitely am a person who believes that brands just kind of happen when great experiences are matched with a consumer who's desperate for the solution, who's really passionate about the solution. And you know, there's been a lot written about creating a great product. So what I thought I'd do to answer this question is focus on how marketing thinking in the earliest of stages, and you touched on this a little bit in your answer to my question, 
how marketing thinking in the early stages can really set you up for a great brand. So there's really three things. Be a detective with your customer, think like a social scientist, and act like a designer. So first, be detective with your customers. You, as a founder, are trying to figure out who your customer is and what drives them to you. Um, and you want to do that so much so that you could actually characterize them. I often advise um, founders that they should try to come to, through testing, figure out the sort of the three to five attributes, behaviors, or attitudes that their early customers have in common. We found, uh, I worked on Home Laser for Gillette, we found that the key predictor of our early customer was how bothered a woman would say in a survey she was, how bothered she was by her body hair. On yeah. a, and on a 10 point scale, we actually found that it was the nines and not the tens. And you would have figured for a very expensive device, the tens would have been the target and they weren't. And there's a whole bunch of really interesting psychological reasons, which we won't go into. Well, there's a lot of social science there, yeah. <laughs> which is why, which is, yeah, which is why you said be a social scientist. Yeah, there's a lot of, there was a lot of like, you know, some of the, I, I could spend our whole time talking about this, but there was a lot of real reasons why it was a nine and not a 10. And I would have said it was the tens. So it's yeah. really important to really learn about this. Um, and, you know, creating a really great customer profile, it can be very helpful for validation reasons but it can also be just very helpful in creating products. I mean, you really know what's driving them to you and how to find them when you go to market. And this can be done with customer interviews, traditional surveys, and really well-designed experiments. And this is something that should be done by the internal team. I think it's an internal team task. Amen. No external resources needed. <laughs> you can outsource it once you know it, but you yes. can't, until you know it, you can't commonly yeah. manage an outsource partner to do it. Oh my God, I'm not supposed to respond, but. You know, you have to figure this out Seriously. as a team. This is job number one. Yeah. And then once you've done that, mm -hmm. the second thing is to go a little further on that social scientist front. Um, and you want to figure out if it's at all possible. Sometimes it's not, it depends on the category. If you can bring emotion into your proposition. I find founders do a really good job solving functional problems and creating functional benefits for their customers. But the thing they often fail to think about is what does the function that they've created, the benefit that they've created on the functional side do for the user or the customer yeah. in terms of emotion, social, or even self-actualization? Um, you know, values and benefits, they have an innate hierarchy. And it's kind of related to Maslow's theory. And I have a great resource for that. So perhaps I can put it in, um, in the show notes. But your strategy is to try to go up that pyramid as much as you possibly can. And you know, when it comes to emotion, it can be really tricky. Sometimes you, um, sometimes you just need to show it. You can't say it. Sometimes it appears in little moments in your product. And sometimes it's part of the brand elements that we're going to talk about in a second. And so I think- Well, and sometimes you have to be prepared for your customers to disappoint you, that they're not actually who you want them to be. That no, we're actually I mean, more vapid and gross than you want us to be. Anyway, <laughs> carry on. And you, you know, you can't, it's, it's so hard to predict what, what, what it really does for consumers. You really have to, you, customers, you really have to do, do the work to understand this. And I do really think that, that founders in general and teams in general underinvest in messaging testing. The words around this matter so, so much and nobody yeah. really figures out their words before they get into market. And that is just a tragedy if you ask me. And then finally, you know, you gotta act like a designer. Brand is a gestalt. You know, there are elements of it. And when you can simultaneously communicate them in market, they create meaning that is uh, greater than the sum of the parts. 
So founders can and should be being deliberate. And you talked about this in your answer of my first question about things like visual identity, brand voice, brand personality. And I find that, you know, when it comes to brand voice and brand personality, that those things are very intuitive to founders. I find yeah, yeah. founders could do that actually in many ways better than an agency. So I really think that that is an internal. Well, and topic. if they can't, then I, if they can't, that's a problem. That's a problem because that's that really problem, sets yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first way that in visual yeah. identity is the way that, that consumers experience the brand. Um, so uh, I think visual identity is one of those things that can be outsourced. I think it can yeah. be, can and often should be outsourced. So if, if I, you know, that's, that's maybe where I would say you could, should augment your team, but I don't think you need a marketing person for any of this, by the way. Yeah. It's helpful if you have one, but you don't really need one for this. It's got to okay. come from whatever the founding team is. Uh, drop the mic. Uh, yes. Amen. Okay. Uh, Stephanie, hit me up with your question about. So my uh, question present. to you is, um, okay. Where is my question to you? Okay, here we go. I would say, sorry, I cut and pasted them. I want to make sure I get this right. I would say in my time working with founders, here we go, that the germination of the brand often comes from the founder's own story, the founding story, or the founder's guiding purpose in all of this. And since you invest in companies a little later than when I typically work with them, what do you see? Are there, are there growing pains in, in, with brands as you, as you try to scale it and you try to get out of that very initial customer? Um, how do, do, do founders have to abandon the founding story or do they merely have to modify it? What do you see today? I, yeah, that, that, like they say, the struggle is real. That, that is, I think, one of the hardest parts of going from the earliest days of being a founder to actually starting to build a business right? Mm -hmm. That, that has some capacity to scale again, and everything doesn't have to be in unicorn, right? Things no. can just be awesome. But I think just to go from, you know, the beginning to that sort of middle, like adolescence, you, I think it's really more psychologically challenging for most founders than we create space to talk about. I think, and I think there's a lot at play. I think, um, Lots of good founders come into a problem space because they had the problem, but there's there's side effects to that too that aren't always great. Because no. um, sometimes scratching your own itch makes you like completely blind to the actual itch that a lot of more people than you have, right? So there's all kinds of complications there. But I think I sort of alluded to it when I interrupted you in, in your answer is one of the hardest parts is sometimes seeing your customer for who they really are rather than who you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And and coming to terms with the way they value you versus how you wish they valued you. And particularly if you were really instrumental in the design of the technology, um, in the software, in the product, whatever it is, and you find out that people really love you, but not for the reasons you wanted them to. Um, and the, or even worse, the people who love you the most are just not the people you were like most passionate about, about in the beginning. And so somewhere in there is this dynamic tension where you have to like let go to move on while also staying true to your own internal compass and making sure that you're still finding ways to extract value from what you're doing and feel good about what you're doing. And I think from a brand perspective, you know, it's kind of think of, I think about brand and early stage companies like your skin and it grow. it has to, it's not a fixed finite thing. It grows with you. It goes through stages and you have to take care of it and evaluate it and do things to it in order to, in order to make sure it grows with you comfortably. And I think for me, even as a founder, like that's been really hard sometimes to come to terms with 
the way the market really values and sees you is just not always what you wanted. And I, and not everyone has an easy time with that. And I think it's why a lot of founders kind of burn out uh, at, a, at that sort of first stopping point and have a hard time making it to the next. So I think there's a lot of psychological negotiating that you have to do with where value and meaning comes from. And a lot, and a lot of this is social science and neuroeconomics about your assumptions and you see what you see because you want to see it. And I think this is where surrounding yourself by people that are maybe, um, you know, complimentary, but adjacent to you can help make that transition a little bit easier. But I, I approach it now as an advisor, as an investor yeah. with, with as much empathy as I can, yeah. but also with almost like a little, like a little, I'm a little bit cold hearted about it. And I'll just, sometimes you have to be like, your customers are not the heroes you think they are. They're just people. And they don't tell you the truth when you ask them questions all the time. And we're all really lazy and we're all really productive and we're all, we're just humans. Humans are the pesky problem, right? With innovation. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's something that I really, because of where we invest in the kinds of companies that I advise and mentor that there, a lot of them are at that point where there's a, there's yeah. as much letting go as there is leaning in and no one trains yeah. you, no one trains you on that. So yeah, that's it. No, not, um, no, I know I'm not supposed to build, but I'll just say that at the end of the day, brands are owned by the customers. They are like it or they not. Are, true story. They, it should, they are not the property of the company. They are owned by the customers and it's what's in the customers. Yeah. And that's hard, particularly we'll for entrepreneurs who are trained to white knuckle a lot of yep. things. Right. All yep. right. Buckle up, Stephanie. Okay, I'm Another ready. Time jump. Doo, doo, doo. We're off to the future. Yep. Um, okay. To say that uh, consumer behaviors have do and will change is a gross understatement. Epically. So yep. um, I don't, the question isn't really if a behavior will change. The question is always um, when it will change but really figuring out which behaviors are gonna change first and how to sequence that together when you're thinking about building your business. If you look in your crystal ball, do you have a prediction for a consumer behavior or experience that's, that might seem pretty durable today, but you have a little niggling feeling that it might be headed for extinction? Oh, yes. Okay, well, first of all, I would say that there's an old adage in marketing that um, human needs don't change, only the solutions. Right. So I think actually to answer your question, I think human mm. needs are actually fairly durable that what we what mm. what happens with progress is that the needs were always there. Yeah, just get better. And so the need state changes a little bit. But then also what happens is technology yeah. um, opens up needs that were not possible before. We've certainly yep. seen that in so many things. Yep, like, yep. Um, so I do, so I don't know what the point of all of that was, I guess, just to say that I think needs are actually, so really no, I think it's a really good point. Yeah. Needs I, are durable. You might add yeah. new needs, but once you add a need, you don't really subtract them that, that much, like fundamentally human needs, like they just the things are, we need. Yeah. yeah they I really, and I think we've all experienced that in COVID, right? Yeah. Our solutions have radically changed. Our needs really haven't. Okay. Um, but that, but that doesn't really answer your question. So let me go, no. let me try to answer it. I actually think <laughs> e-commerce is going to change a lot because yeah. I think it's gotten super commoditized now. And I think the possibilities of AI, ML and AR, VR, I love all these acronyms, um, really opens, gets us closer to what could be a marketer's dream, you know, now we're getting all this data. We're learning a lot about customers. I talked about being able to try trade and understand micro need states, but we might be able to someday really predict those and anticipate those really minute needs or mm. 
occasion triggered demand and be able to serve up exactly what consumers are looking for in that moment. I mean, that, that to me is, could be amazing. Um, and this is already happening in the tech world and I could totally see it's going to continue, which is I could imagine, you know, stores just for me, brands yeah, are yeah. just for me, or maybe even an app that kind of creates itself and recreates yeah. itself based yeah. on how I want to interact with it. So I think, yeah. you know, e-commerce and some of these tech things are really are going to change because of all of the data and all of the learning that's happening on the AIML side. Um, AR and VR, I think, you know, has I don't even really fully understand it, but it has potential, I think, to unlock these really deep um, need states that we can't get at. You know, we talked a lot about consumers give you answers that aren't always, you know, really the deep down truth. But I think AR, VR might give us a way to kind of get at yeah. what, what brands really mean to people and how we can personalize them more. And, you know, it's a, it's could become, these could become platforms for one-to-one -one conversations. And so brands may be very ephemeral and may really become very personalized and individual. I love that. I think, um, again, I, I have to, it's my show. I'll do whatever the hell I want. I have to, uh, your point about uh, this, this concept that my desire for choice and agency is durable. I, I don't know if it is. Uh, and if you can deliver to me what I want, when I want it before I even have to put energy against it, I, that might work out just fine. And I think that's a really huge example of a, a like a pillar of marketing and branding is this idea that I'm in charge I have agency I want choice yes I don't know if I don't know 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 and that's going to be like uh, like in the upside down world so well yeah, and e-commerce become kind of an endless aisle right you yeah, know it's yeah. like do I really want this anymore yeah I don't oh know. my god okay I we are going to come we're going to do we're going to come that's a whole episode that's like, like, that's just going to be a whole thing. That is so amazing. Okay. Home okay. stretch. Okay. That's so a, question to watch you. me into tomorrow. Okay. You are filming season two of unfounded, which means that you are creating content for your brand. And what, if anything, does this video cast or blog indicate about the future of the rev up brand? And how do you think you need to evolve your brand and your experience? in what I imagine, I don't really know, but what I imagine is in an ever increasingly complex VC world. That's an awesome question. Thank you for asking me. I think um, a lot of what I, well, a lot of this exercise has just been self-serving. I wanted to have conversations with people that I really admired and loved about topics that were exciting to me. Some of that just comes from the isolation of the pandemic. I think it's also an awesome time to just put stuff out there and maybe it's helpful to somebody, maybe it isn't. But I think even beyond that, you know, I. Some of it's putting my money where my mouth is, always encouraging my companies to, um, you know, find opportunities to say, have a point of view. You, know, you have to have a point of view, even if you're wrong, have a point of view. And because without one, you're just like a big conky gap, you know. Yeah. But I think from a brand perspective, uh, you know, I care a lot about creating a more authentic dialogue about what it means to build a company. And I think the orthodoxy and some of the rigid structures that from startup V1 that we're really um, alienating and exclusive and I think really just socially unjust. I think there's a huge opportunity here to dismantle that. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of that work is not mine to do. It's to give, it is to give space to the new generation to do that. But I think where I can play a meaningful role and also self-servingly feel like I have a part to play 
is on just continuing to recognize that a lot of what we take to be holy as, as like canonical truths, it's just not. It's just a lot of stuff that got self-perpetuated and self-replicated by the people who had the microphone for a really long time. And while there are learnings and lessons and things that hold true and you'd be wise to pay attention to them today, so much of what I took as gospel it took me 20 years to figure out that it wasn't gospel at all. Um, perhaps it was gospel, which was a made up narrative that was passed down through the generations and given to me as though it was the only op option. And because I didn't see myself represented in, in it at all, it was really unsatisfying. So I think for me, for my brand, what I think this experience has really been about is is trying to live that, live that, like make it make obvious in a in a content sense what I believe to be true, which is that there's more than one answer to every question. Um, it's really difficult today. I think a lot of the work that we do as mentors and advisors is not to be right or wrong. It's to create space for the dialogue and to try to share what we know, but to know that we know that there's a lot that we don't know. Yeah, and I think for me, when I think about what the impact it has on my fund is it puts a lot of pressure on me as a fund manager to remember that my job when I started this fund was to innovate. And if I'm not innovating at work and I'm only innovating over here at play, then I'm failing my, I'm failing my brand and I'm failing the, the founders that were my customers. And so I think part of this is just reinforcing what I've believed for a really long time is that the half-life on an orthodoxy has shrunk, the half-life on a business model has shrunk. Um, and if you don't have a point of view in the middle of all that, then you should just sit down and get out of the way. Mm. <laughs> what a great answer. Yeah, so I fight, I fight today for my relevancy. <laughs> And also, this is a whole day of conversations that just leaves me really inspired um, for all that for all that is to come. So that's it. We did it. We circumnavigated the topic with three questions. Um, I, just I've let you have left me with so much to think about. I will be back for more. Um, and I just I can't thank you enough um, for all that you do. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you for participating. Well, thank you so much from Melissa for letting me participate and share what I think it's, you know, it's an amazing subject branding it really. It's so much. Well, sayonara. <laughs> <laughs>